Good evening, my name is Judy, I'm an alcoholic. I love Alcoholics Anonymous for so many reasons. One, because it saved my life when I first got here and because it continues to save my life on a daily basis. And one of the things that I suffered from when I first got here was that I didn't feel like I belonged and I didn't have a lot of friends and I didn't know how to be a friend and I just was socially awkward and didn't know what to do about it. And by showing up and working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, today I feel like I'm a member of something and it's because of what you all do. And one of the best things I love about Sobriety by the Sea is first, you know, excellent speakers this week, and it's been wonderful. But it's meeting people that are friends that I just haven't met yet. And, you know, every time I meet a new alcoholic, it's like I've known them forever and ever and ever. Um, and this is no different with Jenny. Um, you are in for a treat, that's all I can say. So I would like to introduce Jenny W. from Austin, Texas. Okay, I'm gonna set a timer here so y'all have hope. Okay. My name's Jenny Wood, I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since July 8th of 1999. And I'm really grateful for that today. Oh my gosh, this weekend has just been incredible so far. Um, thank you to the committee and to Monica for asking me to come here. And to everybody who's had something to do with this weekend, it's just been wonderful. From the dinner at Sabina's house to my excellent host, uh, she keeps telling me, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, I feel like I should be creative. <laughs> we talked about Oregon, but then we thought, how mad would Monica be if we didn't come back for the meeting? <laughs> like, probably in 11, so we were like, no, let's, let's don't. We just went to the Dutch Bros down the street, not, not in Oregon, so. Um, and it's been such a cool thing. When I told uh, my friend, my dear friend, Melissa, that I was coming here, she said, Oh my God, my cousins live there. And so we kind of made it a girls weekend where she came out and her cousins, Millie and Sue, who live in the area are here, they're in Al-Anon. So, I mean, it, it's so cool. It's like better than anything we could have planned, right? Um, so my home group is the primary purpose group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Austin, Texas. Uh, we meet weekly on a Tuesday night at 7.30 down at, I think it's called the, 04 Center, it used to be a, it, it's a church, but it's hip, so it's called a center now. Um, but we have about 200 alcoholics studying the big book, so it's, uh, it's incredible. If you're in Austin, Texas on a Tuesday, we would love to have you. Um, <clears throat> so in our book, it talks about on page 29 that each individual and the personal stories describes in his own language and from his point of view the way he has established his relationship with God. And that's what I'm gonna to try to do here tonight is you know, go through my life a little bit and how, how was I with God at each time. So um, my mom and dad had me when they were older uh, and my mom had a mental illness and my dad was alcoholic so it was, it was pretty quiet around the house, but it was also chaotic. And if you've grown up in an environment like that, you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's just kind of an uneasiness. Um, 
My sisters are 19 and 21 years older than I am. And so they're like second moms to me. And um, the thing about growing up like that is no matter what our problems were, I always knew I was loved. My parents doted on me, my sisters doted on me. And when I went out in the world and other people didn't, I was pretty confused, you know? <laughs> because with my mom and sisters, it's like anything I do, it's like, oh my God. You know, even today, it's like I'll hang a picture on the wall and they're like, oh, you should be an interior decorator. Um, so, and I think that that's, you know, that's really the thing, it's, you know, if, love is what really matters, right? Um, but from the beginning, I wanted a relationship with God, and when I was eight years old, I started having my parents, they didn't want to go to church, they were not about that life, and, uh, and, but they were willing to drop me off at a church a few blocks from our house, and I loved it. Um, and you'll hear more in my story about my personality, but I kind of like that pity feeling you get when you're a kid who's eight years old, whose parents don't go to church, and you do. Um, and so, you know, people would say, now who are your parents? I would say, they don't go. <laughs> it's just me. I love the Lord. <laughs> you know, and people are just like, oh, come sit by us, we'll buy you lunch, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm so great. Um, but I was a nervous kid. I mean, I was just constantly on edge, and when I was about that age, um, I chewed off all of my hair, I mean, all of it, just the part that could reach to my mouth, um, you know, and so I had this, like, bowl cut. It was all real uneven, um, and I was just nervous as a cat, and, and, I was, and I was scared of God at that time. Um, I just knew I had to be good, you know, like that was my thing, I just have to be good. But I knew my thoughts weren't that good, and so it was really a losing battle, you know, just being nervous, chewing my hair, you know, getting dropped off at church every time they opened the doors. Um, and honestly, I mean, it was kind of a little bit of an escape from home, you know, because home was kind of weird, and it was like, Sure, I'll go. I'll go to Bible Bowl. I don't care. Whatever. Sign me up. Um, and it goes without saying, most people don't grow up and say, you know, I really want to be an alcoholic when I grow up. But that, I never wanted to be an alcoholic. Like, that, that was number one thing. You know, I'm going to be good. Not going to do that. Um, because I thought it was a person who loved their loved booze more than they loved their family. That was kind of my working definition. Um, I knew my dad, he was the sweetest guy. I mean, just full of love, a, a sweetheart of a guy, but I mean, he drank all the time and it was very, you know, painful for us. So I didn't have that misconception of, you know, an alcoholic as someone who, you know, whatever, is homeless or lives on the streets. You know, that can be the case, but I just thought it was a person who put alcohol above their family and I didn't want to do that. Um, but that wore off. <laughs> because the first time I took a drink, it was amazing. I mean, I don't remember the first time I ate a taco, but <laughs> the first time I took a drink, it was like I was prettier, I could dance good. Yes, you know it, for sure. 
He gets it. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and so, and, and I can't dance, because I learned that at my first AA dance. That, that was a misconception. Um, only when I was drinking could I dance good. Um, and I just, I wanted to do it all the time. I even remember telling my friends, because my friends and I would be like, oh my gosh, we can have fun without drinking, blah, blah, blah. And then I went to him and I was like, guys, I know we keep doing this whole, we can have fun without drinking, but we should do drinking. <laughs> it's way better, you know? And, and they all kind of looked at me weird, but they were like, okay. And, um, and so I, I really kind of let go of that whole being good thing um, at that point. And for the first time in my life, I didn't feel nervous. I didn't feel like I needed to chew my hair. Um, you know, I just felt comfortable in my own skin when I was drinking. Um, and so from that moment forward, I took every single opportunity that I possibly could uh, to drink. And, uh, and, I, and I wasn't ever, I mean, I didn't really attempt to be a moderate drinker so much. Um, I, don't, I, I still don't find an interest in that. <laughs> because I want, a, I want oblivion, you know, not, a, not taking the edge off. Let's go past that, you know. Um, and so I hit it as hard as I could, you know, and um, what I didn't know was that, you know, I had a, an illness and that, you know, once I took a drink, I really couldn't control how much. Um, not that I tried that hard, but, <laughs> but there were times where, you know, I would, I would wake up or come to or whatever, and I would just say, God, you know, I don't want to do what I did last night. You know, I'd blame it on tequila or, um, you know, that kind of thing. But I, I, you know, that just that shame that you wake up with and the trying to piece together what happened the night before, because I was a blackout drinker. Um, and I lived in a small town, you know, similar to this. And so, you know, like you're gonna run into people the next day and they're gonna remember what happened, you know? And so it's that whole thing of like, oh yeah, I did see you. You know, like, tell me more, you know, I'm, I'm trying to kind of act like I know what you're talking about. Like, oh, yeah, that thing that happened, it was a thing that, oh, we did that together, you know. And, and so that happened a lot. And, um, you know, and things just kind of, you know, gradually they got worse. Um, but I didn't realize that I had that al the aller allergic reaction. And the times, uh, especially at work, I was a beverage cart driver at a golf course for a while, and yeah, it's actually kind of a dream job for an alcoholic. <laughs> you get the keys to the liquor cabinet, you know, you just can do whatever. That was a fun amends, but. Um, but, but I would try sometimes, I would be like, okay, you know, like I'm not gonna get messed up because that's bad if you're drunk on a golf course and you're working there. It's like, oh, I left my cigars at this hole and my candy at this one and I'm going the wrong way and, you know, it was, uh, yeah. Um, and so, but I didn't, I didn't have the power once I started drinking, you know, to, to stop. And then that mental obsession kept taking me back to it, you know? and kept telling me, well, this time it'll be different. You won't do that. You won't pee on your friend's couch this time, you know. Why does the couch always have to be white, okay? No, well, no more white couches. Um, 
and so that went on and you know people in my life were not happy with my drinking and you know the term alcoholic was being tossed around quite often um, you know with my family and friends and boyfriend and um, and so uh, my last drunk it was pretty glamorous so you guys might want to hang on um, <clears throat> so I'm from Temple which is about an hour north of Austin and um, one thing that we like to do uh, was we like to go to ladies' night at Stampede Nightclub on Wednesday nights. And um, it, was, it was really a Wednesday night, like every other Wednesday night. We would have a pre-party before the party, you know, and then the after party. So at the pre-party, we were at my friend's hair salon um, called the Hair Corral. Um, it was a Western-themed salon. And uh, we were drinking um, like Malibu rum with crystal light because that was like classy and low calorie at the same time. And so, you know, we were drinking, 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 and and uh, and it was it was this. I was a blackout drinker, but this was more of a brownout where it was like flashes of the night I could remember, and then parts of it I don't. But we went to Stampede. And I was dancing with a guy that like wasn't my boyfriend, and I think we were kissing or something, you know how it goes, and all that, and and that's bad because you know it's a small town, right? Like I was gonna get around, you know, his best friends there or whatever. Um, and you know my friends were so good, they like totally were just caretakers, except this night they left or I couldn't find them, and so I ended up getting a ride back to my friend's house with some strangers. And this is the part of my story that I'm like, oh my God, really? And, uh, and, they, and they just dropped me off in front of my friend's house and left. And, uh, and I passed out on the sidewalk. But I mean, that could have gone so many other ways, right? And those were, those were the kind of decisions I made day in and day out. And I mean, not that I decided, right? Those were just the things that happened whenever, um, you know, a woman's drinking. And so I passed out on the sidewalk in front of um, my friend's house. And they came back. I guess they went to Jack in the Box or something. And, and I went, <clears throat> you know, went there, went to bed. And um, the next morning I'd woken up and I'd peed on myself again. And, uh, you know, and, and it, it was, you know, that's always embarrassing because you're like, hey, I peed on your bed, sorry. And, um, you know, people were like, oh, that's okay. Like, what do you say? <laughs> and so, but that day, I put on my clothes from the night before, and I had, like, this mud stain down my outfit, and I smelled like pee. And I just heard, like, I don't know if it was, like, a voice or, I don't know, it was just this inaudible kind of thing when I looked in the mirror, and it said, you don't have to live like this. I was like, what do you mean, like, this is how I live? Um, and so the next thought that came was maybe I should try Alcoholics Anonymous. And here's the thing. I had seen Alcoholics Anonymous in the temple paper in the what's happening section. <laughs> because there's not a lot happening in temple. 
And so, here's the thing though, is like, I didn't know that they didn't drink. How would I know that? And so I just assumed it was like people that were alcoholics, which I was clearly, and they could help each other, you know, like beer before liquor, never been sicker, liquor before beer, have no fear, you know, avoid these roads, there's always cops there, you know, helpful information for people like me. And I reason like, why would you not drink because alcohol is in the name? Right? Okay, so, I mean, it didn't even occur to me that people wouldn't drink, like why? If you're an alcoholic, of course you drink. Um, and so I go and I, uh, I tell my mom, I'm like, mom, I'm gonna go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and she is like so happy. She's like, oh, good, oh my gosh, that's so great. I'm like, okay, thanks mom. You know, I'm confused still and I call there and I was like, oh, I see that there's an eight o'clock meeting um, I've never been, you know, can I just like show up? And they were like, come now. I was like, <laughs> I was like no, I, I'll, I'll just come for the eight o'clock meeting, that's fine. And they were like, okay, we can't wait to see you. And they were so excited. I'm like, oh my God, okay. Um, and so I go and everybody's like, glad you're here, glad you're here. And, uh, and I'm just, I don't even know what happened during the meeting. I sat by this guy and he was really nice, and he was like so glad I was there too. Um, everybody was so happy, and I don't really remember anything about like the meeting other than at the end, they were doing the chips, and they were like blah blah blah, um, chip chip chip, and then they were like, "Does anybody have a desire to stay sober for 24 hours?" And I'm like, "I don't know who's going to do that," and the guy next to me is like, "That's you, that's you," and I was like. And I, I said, like, what's 24 hours going to do? And then they were like, ha, 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 And I'm like, that's a legitimate question. <laughs> I thought it was like a dare, like, Fred did it last week. Like, you're new, it's your turn to prove that you cannot drink for a day. I was like, okay. Because um, I had done that like lots of times where I was like, I didn't drink all day yesterday. So how do you think I'm an alcoholic now? You know. And so then they said, well, do you think you cannot drink till midnight? And I was like, I didn't know our plans at that point. And so I was like, yes. And they go, yay. I was like, this feels familiar, like my childhood home. People are like happy, excited for very small things. Um, and so I liked that. Um, and so I got my 24-hour chip and I went back over to my friend's house that I had peed at the night before. And I said, Megan, I went to AA and they said I can't drink till midnight. And, and she said, oh my God, I watched a movie about that. <laughs> and so we didn't know what we were gonna like do the next three hours, or at least I didn't. 
And so we went to Hollywood Video and rented the VHS of When a Man Loves a Woman. And so, you know, we get some Sprite, um, you know, because, like, what do you drink with a movie like that? And we watch it, and I am sobbing the whole time. I'm like, oh, my God, Megan. They don't drink at all. And I told him I would come back tomorrow. <laughs> and that's the most impressive part of the story to me is that I did. I came back the next day. And I mean, I've had sponsees no show on fifth steps. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I'm in the car, I'll be there in just a second and I never hear from him again. <laughs> like, the fact that I would have this tie to this room full of strangers that I would be willing to show up the next day was just, it, it still floors me today. And, uh, and I'm so glad that I did, because I fell in love with AA. Um, I love the way people cussed, and I love the way they smoked. And then in the same breath, they would talk about God. And I used to go to the noon meeting, and uh, oh my gosh, the ladies there, I just thought they were, like you were talking about last night, I just thought they were like so prim and so proper, and I just felt like so, you know, just like ashamed of everything I'd done. Um, I dressed a lot different then. Like one woman had said, do you ever leave anything to the imagination? <laughs> and I didn't exactly knew what that meant, but. The people and the women in AA taught me, like in a loving, firm way, like this is how we dress for meetings, you know, this is, you know, why. And, and so, you know, I've really grown in that area. Um, and then I, I heard these women's stories and I was like, oh my gosh, wow. Maybe you did do more than burn your husband's eggs in the morning. Jeez. <laughs> Woo. Um, and so I fell in love with AA and, you know, and I really hit AA so hard, you know. I had this sponsor that, because I looked at the steps on the wall and I don't think anybody looks at them and is like, by golly, I can't wait. Um, <laughs> but I didn't really understand like how I had all these problems and writing on paper was gonna help. Um, but she was very insistent, like, call me every day, blah, blah, blah. And she was just, like, obsessed with working the steps. <laughs> and so, finally, I was like, what? okay, fine, fine, fine. What are the steps going to do? Um, and, you know, from that first, you know, fourth step and then fifth step and, you know, pass through the amends where people know that you're in AA and they want you to make amends to them. <laughs> kind of thing. Have you seen that Seinfeld episode where everybody is expecting the guy to make the amends? Like, those were the people I made amends to, the people that are like, I know your program. You've done some things. <laughs> I know. Um, and so I just fell in love with the program. Um, but then, you know, thing, that life got good, you know? And... Uh, I got the gifts of the program. I graduated college. Um, I got married. Um, spoiler alert, I'm still married to the guy. Um, 
but I mean, he was just so amazing. And, um, and I started to become a victim of the delusion that I could wrest satisfaction and happiness out of the world if I could only manage well. Um, and so I began to think my problems were in alcoholism. You know, I thought it was depression, um, you know, my husband, you know, it, the, the whole shine wears off <laughs> pretty quickly. Uh, I can kind of tell my spiritual fitness by, you know, how I'm reacting to the way he's chewing. And the sad thing is that he knows it. Like, I was irritated with him one day, and I was like, I'm not going to say anything. You know, I should just, like, you know, call my sponsor. But I, like, turned up the radio because we were in the car, and he was like, do you just turn up the radio because my chewing's annoying you? <laughs> yes, I did. It is. How can it be so loud when your mouth is closed? <laughs> like, whew. And I drifted away from the fellowship. Um, you know, I'd moved uh, to the town that, to Austin, where my husband lives and I live now. Um, but I was always looking for the job that would make me happy. Um, you know, if I can just get the job that I, you know, then I can, I can be happy. And um, I burned a lot of bridges in that process. Um, we started going to church, and it's actually the same church I go to now, and it's a very positive church. And, and, but I just couldn't really think positive so much because I was in so much rage all the time. You know, I'm not really going to that many meetings. I'm not, you know, working any steps really. Um, and so then I had a brilliant idea that I was going to become a teacher. And that would be what would fulfill me. A middle school teacher. <laughs> just let that sink in. Middle school. <laughs> One long year. Long. Oh. I used to take the school calendar and like cross off the days that I, for the rest of the year, it was, it was awful. Um, but it drove me back to meetings, you know? It really did. Oh. Oh. But I, but that's the thing about meetings. Meetings are great, but they brought relief and not freedom, right? Um, and I thought I had what I term as alcoholism uh, because I got sober in college, right? I thought I probably don't like have as bad of a case as m more people because you know I got sober when I was younger. Blah, blah, blah. That's not true, um, you know. And so I had the job I wanted. Uh, I ended up starting to teach elementary school, which. They are so much sweeter. I mean, I swear, like the first few months, I'd come home and they would, because elementary school kids, for the most part, like want to please you. And I like that. I like to be pleased. Um, and so they'd be like, Miss Wood, you're the best teacher ever. And I'm like, thank you. You know, the middle schoolers aren't saying that. Um, they're like, Miss, I hate this class. I'm like, huh. Ah. Um, but yeah, so I, I would just go to the teacher's lounge and I was like, guys, they said, he said I was his favorite teacher. And they're like, yeah, that's what elementary school kids do. I'm like, shut it. <laughs> I'm his favorite teacher, okay? 
so by this time, I had the job I wanted, the house, um, I had my husband, and I'd ended up giving birth to a sweet little baby girl. Uh, by this time, she was two. And, um, and so what I knew at that point, I was still miserable inside, and I knew that having a second child would actually make me happy. Because any of you that have kids know if you keep having kids, you get happier, right? Isn't that? Yeah. And so Mr. Wood was not on the same page. Um, he was happy with the one child. Um, and so I um, tried to get pregnant, like, without his permission. With him. So there's that. I mean, that's good. Um, but that'll drive a wedge in your marriage if you try to get pregnant without your husband's permission, even if it is with him. Um, but I was driven at that point, right? Because I'm like, okay, you know, it wasn't the job. It wasn't the one kid. It's got to be the other kid. And yeah, crazy, 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 crazy. And this is, you know, like at 12 years sober. Um, and so uh, through a series of God-inspired events, I ended up in uh, KDP's living room. So how many of you have heard KDP's talk? Anybody? Okay, couple here. Well, she's my sponsor now, and she's been sober almost 35 years. She had a revolutionary spirit, spiritual experience at 17 years sober, um, and she is on fire with the work, sponsoring people, the steps, the big book. And so I ended up in her living room, and she's talking about the big book, and I'm like, I don't, I don't need to do all that. Why would I need to do all that? I've been sober 12 years now, well, you know. And, um, but I, I had that thing where my sponsor said, you know, you should come to this meeting, blah, blah, blah. And, and I had that thing like, okay, you're supposed to do what your sponsor says, I'm gonna do that. And so after a few months, she described the first step in a way that I hadn't heard before. Of course, I've heard about the allergy, you know, once I start drinking in the middle of session. But this part about untreated alcoholism or the spiritual malady, that in sobriety, it describes it on page 52. Uh, it's sometimes called the bedevilments. Uh, it says, we were having trouble with our personal relationships. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Remember the thing or the, yeah. Um, we couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness, we were full of fear, we were unhappy, and we couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And at 12 years sober, I laid my own experience up against that, and I realized, holy crap, all this stuff, this is alcoholism. My problems are of my own making. Um, and I started to realize that my real problem was self-centeredness, um, that it talks about on pages 60 to 63 in our book. And I couldn't see myself in that because the book describes it as a self-seeker when trying to be kind, and that's the way self shows up for me. Like, I'm the kind of person, um, when I was a teacher, I'd make the copies for the whole team. Whole team, you know? Watch when they don't make copies next time. Okay, I'll remember that. Yeah, okay. 
If someone question, you know, I'll plan the field trip. Someone questions my planning. Oh, you want to plan the field trip? All right. Okay, buddy. Um, but that's the way, you know, I'm always doing and giving. But there's an expectation, you know. Like, I hold the door open. Oh, someone better say thank you, you know. <laughs> and so at that point, I began to treat my alcoholism in a way that I was never willing to before that moment. Um, and so the main thing that I was never willing to do was 10, 11, and 12. And I didn't understand them, right? I thought the steps were really something that I mainly focused on when I first got sober. But after this spiritual awakening, I realized that 10, 11, and 12 were strict spiritual disciplines that I have to do daily to treat my alcoholism. If I believe this is a deadly illness, how much time am I taking to treat this deadly illness? Um, and so for the longest time, I'd read Step 10 off the wall. But in the book, it talks about continuing to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And then it tells us to do four things. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them, discuss them with someone immediately, and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So like I'd remembered reading that before, like about discussing, but in the past, like it kind of, it looked like gossip, right? So I would be at work and I'd be like, do you like Becky? I don't either. Oh, God, I'm so glad I discussed this with someone else. <laughs> wow. So I'm sitting in Katie's meeting, and she's talking about the 10th step. And I, I turned to this gal who, who was fairly new, and I was like, I was like, so if I have a resentment, like I need to call my sponsor every time? And she goes, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. But there was just so much stuff I hadn't, you know, I had never done that before. Um, I thought the 10th step was like a nightly review, but I wasn't doing that either, right? I didn't realize it was this daily watching my thoughts and, you know, reaching out to someone and, you know. And so I started to call Katie with 10 steps because she said, call me with 10 steps. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll do that. And I started to experience freedom through understanding that my problems were entirely of my own making. It wasn't the job, it wasn't the husband, it wasn't having one kid, believe it or not. Um, and so she helped me to see the, these resentments from an entirely different angle, from usually the perspective of the person in the, you know, that I'm calling about. Um, which I can see in other people clearly, but when, when it's happening to me, I'm like, oh my God, I never considered that they may have feelings too. <laughs> Especially if I'm threatened, like, you know, on benign things, of course, but when it's something I'm really scared about, no, I don't see it. And so I started to, some of these resentments were so deep that I ended up writing more inventory and I carried it all the way through the amends process. <clears throat> so during that period, um, that I like to call untreated alcoholism. Um, I used to work at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and um, I hated that job. Oh, I hated it so bad. Um, 
but so after writing this inventory, and I take it, took it all the way through the amends process, and I became willing to make amends to all the people I had harmed that I could remember. Um, so I was having dinner with some friends, and we were talking about Enterprise, and then I don't know where these things come, but this thought just hit me, and it was like, wham! Okay, so when I was at Enterprise, I was you know six or seven years sober, and I hated the job. So the first time you have an employee accident at Enterprise, like they, you know, you don't have to pay anything. Well, the second time you're supposed to pay a $500 deductible. In the meantime, I'd gotten married um, and they didn't catch it. Kind of dishonest, right? Uh, well, I never said anything. And I was like, good. I hate those guys anyway, you know? And so as I'm going through this amends process, I'm like, holy, wow. I owe Enterprise Rent a Car $500. And so, and then I also owed a slew of amends to the people that I worked with because I was terrible. I used to have, the, I had this boss, so he was so sweet. He, he was like almost, um, I don't know, the guy from The Simpsons, the Ned, Ned guy. He's like, holy shucks, kind of guy. And um, I called to make amends. And he wasn't like, oh, it's water on the bridge. He was like, well, you were a pistol. <laughs> oh. I mean, if we translate that, we know that's bad. Um, and so anyway, so I talked to my husband. My husband is not in the program. He doesn't drink. He's, I mean, he never has had a problem with drinking. He just, you know, it's not his thing. Um, but in this time that I've started to work an AA program, he's seen so much improvement in our lives together and in our marriage and in me. When I said, honey, you know, I owe Enterprise Rent-A-Car $500, he was like, whatever you need to do. And that's the power of Alcoholics Anonymous, that he would just say, okay. And, um, and so I did, I did um, call and, and ask, and they couldn't find it in the records still. And I talked to my sponsor, and she said, well, pray about it and see what charity you can donate that to. And right around that time, another old boss of mine at Enterprise was going on a mission trip to Haiti. And, uh, and so I prayed about it, and I donated it to that. And he reached out to me and he said, you know, that $500 was really what pushed us over the edge to be able to go, you know? And for that, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's that God's timing. It's like for this process all to work and that exact time and this amends to come up and it's amazing. And so with the 11th step, you know, the nightly review and the morning meditation, I'd never had a practice at all. Um, but with the 11th step, it's such a beautiful process because that morning meditation of looking at my day, going through page 86, you know, and getting connected with God, you know, and then at the end of the night, doing that evening review where I'm basically checking my work from, hey, did I do a 10th step today? Um, there was a lot of trial and error. So initially, I tried to do it when I was like laying in bed. So I'd set a timer and then I'd lay there and then ding, 
I'm like, oh, geez, <laughs> did I sleep pray? Or um, It didn't work out. And so I don't know about you guys, but I, don't, I didn't really have a space in my house for me. Like my husband has his office and my daughter has her room. And, and then my husband was like, well, you have the kitchen. <laughs> and we're still married. Um, no, he was actually kidding about that. But what I did, we have, we're in a two-story house, and so we have this under-stair closet. It's very big for a closet, and I made that my meditation closet. And so I go in there, and I do my morning meditation there. It's got like a lamp and a fan and all my books, and there's not enough room to lie down in there. <laughs> I tried, because sometimes I'm tired. And one day, actually, I went in there, I think, to do nightly review, but I was on my phone, and, like, my, my family knows, like, don't come in the closet, um, but my husband needed to tell me something, and he was like, are you just on your phone in there? <laughs> I was like, it's my closet. I can do whatever I want. But no, most of the time, I'm either doing my nightly review or praying or meditating, but it's my closet. Um, and then with the 12th step, I'd never been willing to work with others. Um, I don't know. I thought it was like for other people to do. And I just, I didn't really have a message of depth and weight. So if people would ask, then, you know, they would usually just kind of fall off, you know. Um, but after having this experience, I got really excited, you know, about Alcoholics Anonymous and, you know, the fact that this is a deadly illness and, um, and also that our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depends upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. But, you know, at 12 years sober, um, I didn't feel qualified. Uh, you know, I hadn't really done that much with it. And um, I also didn't really like being vulnerable because I knew that, like, I would have to tell people, like, stuff about me, too, because that's what you do with sponsees. And... You know, I'd always been about, you know, saving face, right? Just the man, it, it describes it on the man, the, as the man on 73, you know, just the phony. Um, but, you know, I became willing to do that, and I got excited about it. Um, and now, I mean, sponsorship to me is just such a gift. It really saves my life. It, the last few months have been very hard, but, you know, being willing to take sponsees' calls and talk to them and care about someone else. Um, God, it can piss me off sometimes, though. <sighs> you're like, really? That's what you're going to do with that, okay. Okay. But I get to do 10 steps, right? I mean, there are so many times when I call my sponsor, you know, with a resentment about a sponsee, and then I get to see it from a different angle and grow an understanding and effectiveness with that. Um, you know, and I get to feel God speaking through me. I think Sabina was saying earlier, you know, sometimes we don't remember what we say to sponsees, and I'm like, well, maybe it's because I didn't say it. Maybe it was God speaking through me. Um, yeah. So in April 2014, uh, everything really changed a lot in my life. Um, I got a call from my sister that my mom was in the ER uh, she had been diagnosed with congestive heart failure, failure and uh, over the next couple months, uh, my sisters and I basically took turns living with our parents in Temple. 
And a certain point over the summer, uh, it became clear that my mom's psych meds weren't working anymore um, and that she was in the middle of a psychotic break. Um, but with the tools of this program, I mean, you know, I call them, I, I called with the 10th step in the middle of the grocery store parking lot one day and I was like, oh my God, my mom's running my life. Um, but, you know, that's the thing is just continuing to, to stay with the 10th step on stuff like that. Um, but my parents, they both had dementia and were homebound for three and a half years. And my sisters and I took turns, you know, doing their medicine, doing their groceries. And, um, and also in 2014, I quit teaching and returned to graduate school to get my master's degree in school counseling. Um, and I was able to graduate in 2017. And during this time, my dad was also diagnosed with colon cancer. But it's amazing how I had the perfect time to take my parents to doctor's appointments while I was going to graduate school. I wouldn't have had that time as a teacher. And working with others, our book talks about when we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. And so I went, when I went back to work, I went back to work part-time, um, you know, and I've been parenting our nine-year-old daughter. Um, she's such a hoot. Uh, she's just, if she were here this weekend, her name's Elise, you would be like, I think Elise's mom is actually speaking Saturday night. Because <laughs> she just runs the show. I mean, she's just like, hey. You know, I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, I'm in the background. I'm, I'm just the momager of that. Um, but like I said earlier, the past few months have been some of the most challenging times of my life. Because um, my dad uh, went to the hospital for the last time on June 9th of this year. Um, his colon cancer had progressed and there was no viable treatment. It was one of those things where the treatment would have been worse than... Um, you know, than anything. Um, and he spent four days in hospice care at um, the Scott and White Hospital in Temple. And on June 14th, he took his last breath as my sister and I held his hands and prayed with him in the hospital room. And because of this program, it was clean between us. All of the inventory that I'd written, all of the 10 steps, there was nothing but love there. Because if if you would have asked me the day I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, why were you an alcoholic? I would have said, my mom and dad. And, uh, and through this program, I've gotten the last 20 years with, with him, with my parents. And I wouldn't have had that without you guys. Even if I had it, I wouldn't have had the relationship because there would have been way too much anger there. But grieving is no joke. As you all know, if you've grieved before, it has been you know, good days and bad days. Uh, since then, on, uh, on my dad's birthday, actually, August 3rd, my mom fell and broke her hip. They were married 62 years. Yeah, yeah. And um, that same day, my best friend moved across the country. <laughs> and it was just like so many tears. But in Bill's story on page 15, he says, it is a design for living that works in rough going. And that really has been the truth. Um, it has not always been pretty. 
Um, but I've, real, I've kept showing up with 10 steps, um, doing my morning meditation, doing my nightly review, working with my sponsees. And my relationship with God has grown in so many different ways. But I want to leave you with a line from page 28. It says, what seemed at first a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. God is always there. But we just have to show up and we have to stay unblocked. Thank you. Yeah.